He is a Disney historian and a board game aficionado. If you had to guess his specialty, you would be right. He's a pediatrician. With an all-star team of physicians teaching him OMM at the University of North Texas Health Science Center, it was not hard to take a liking and appreciation for OMT. During residency, he was on the osteopathic medicine track, keeping up on his OMT skills and discussing OMT literature with fellow residents. He loves treating infants with cranial techniques and hopes to pass this knowledge on to future OMT physicians. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ryan Flaherty Dio. Welcome to episode 69 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Our guest is in the process of completing a pediatric hospital medicine fellowship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. During his pediatric residency at the Nationwide Children's Hospital, he was on the osteopathic recognition track, a longitudinal curriculum designed to develop osteopathic principles of practice in pediatrics. He is the creator and host of Portable Peds, an original weekly pediatric board exam review podcast. He and fellow residents also created a pediatric residency-wide osteopathic curriculum to educate pediatric residents on what it means to be an osteopathic pediatrician, how this unique training contributes to diversity in medicine, as well as an overview of pediatric osteopathic manipulative medicine. He has lectured on numerous topics such as plagiocephaly and feeding difficulties and basics of OMM. Thanks for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. Happy yeah, to really, Yeah, really, really appreciate it. You're, you're in fellowship, and I imagine it's also quite demanding as far as the hour commitment. Uh, no, it's actually much better than residency, honestly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I picked one of the fellowships that's, I mean, I do a lot of clinical stuff, and when I'm on, I'm on, but... In general, I do about a week or two of service a month, uh, seven days straight. And then I do like a couple, like two to three night shifts a month. And then otherwise I'm just doing research or electives. Uh, like my co-fellow right now is on sedation, but it's not too bad. Okay, that's great. Well, in any case, I appreciate you being generous with your time and coming on to share your experience and your story related to OMM. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Before we dive in, if we could get to know you a little bit as a person, if you could share with us some hobbies outside of your pediatric practice. Sure. Uh, I'm a huge nerd, so uh, I love uh, Disney-related things, so listening to lots of Disney music. I used to work at Disney. Um, I worked at Disney World at Kilimanjaro Safari Ride and Animal Kingdom, which was a, a blast. Um, I also am a huge board game nerd. I own hundreds of board games and literally some co-fellows are going to come over and play board games this weekend. Um, so those are kind of my main hobbies. And then just hanging out with friends and stuff, just like anybody else. Yeah. How, where did your love for Disney, where did that start? Oh man. Uh, I think it started when I was a junior in high school. Um, we had to do a project where we had to like read a biography about like an American uh like entrepreneur essentially. And I read about Disney and his personal life history is fascinating. And it's basically almost like uh, his own Disney movie. Like he had multiple villains that like stole his original characters from him. He, that's why he created Mickey Mouse because he lost Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And it's just, his history is very impressive and it's hard not to 
be enraptured by it. Yeah. And you even started a podcast, didn't you, related to Disney history? I did. I taught a class on Disney history in college after I came back from uh, working at Disney World. I taught a, 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 it was a history of the Disney company. I did that as like a seminar course in college. And then I still loved it so much. I wanted to make a chronological like Disney podcast. I only made a couple episodes just because as I'm sure you are well aware of being 69 episodes in, it's a lot of work to make a podcast. And so that was the first of many podcasts I made. It's still available on Apple Podcasts, uh, Disney in Review, but oh man, it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, you you took a deep dive into Disney, huh? Yeah. So do you have a favorite Disney movie or Disney character? Oh man, uh, I do. Um, it's probably uh, not one you would expect. Um, because I'm such a Disney history nerd, my favorite Disney movie is Snow White. I mean, it's hard not to be impressed watching it. The, first, the longest animated anything prior to that was like 8 to 11 minutes long, uh, Flowers and Trees. And so going from 8 to 11 minutes to like an hour and a half is a pretty impressive leap. And so uh, I can't watch it and not just be... Uh, like awestruck and jaw on the floor at how good it is for being such a leap at the time. Yeah. What about Disney character? Oh, geez. Disney character. Um, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in the, like the Disney Renaissance. So like all of those things like Hercules, Aladdin, uh, Ariel mm. bell, I think just cause I'm such a nerd. I, I appreciate how much of a nerd bell is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that would be my favorite or not, but I, I appreciate yeah. uh, the, the the nerdiness. Can you sing like Belle? Oh, geez. Uh, I can't get my voice that high, but I can sing. I was in a musical in high school, but... <laughs> nice, nice. And then board games. I mean, you... So I was reading in your CV, you're an amateur board game designer. Yeah, emphasis on amateur. I haven't actually, like, made anything that you have to publish because to make like an actual like designed board game that's like published that's gone through like 50 to a hundred revisions. And so, I mean, honestly, like the, that's the most interesting part is like uh, a lot of the board game hobby bleeds over pretty heavily into medicine. So all of the like board game design process is just QI. It's just uh, like a PDSA cycle that you're doing on repeat. It's just a rapid PDSA cycle that instead of over a couple of months, you're doing it in a game session. And so hmm. It's just an interesting how how closely that actually correlates into stuff. And like I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. And the team making, because at its core, Dungeons and Dragons is a collaborative storytelling game. And so mm -hmm. it's a lot of interpersonal conflict and conflict resolution, which sounds pretty familiar with medicine and a yeah. lot of just uh, hanging out with your friends and talking. And so it, it's crazy how much board games correlate with medicine. So you're like honing your medical skills as you're playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's like a justification almost, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, something like that. <laughs> that's interesting. I have, I've never heard anybody uh, make correlations between board games and medicine, but I like it. Yeah. I like it. I like it. What about, Ryan, a, a book recommendation for our audience? Oh, man. Uh, I feel like nobody ever talks about uh, the Pendragon book series. Uh, that's like one of my favorite book series of all time. It came out around like the same time as like all the Harry Potter stuff. Uh, like a lot of the, the sequel book series came out like at the same time. And so it just got kind of eclipsed by that and like the Percy Jackson series and stuff like that. 
Um, but yeah, Pendragon's great. It's like that uh, a fantasy type world where every book's a different world and it's uh, got great character development over the course of it. It's like 10 books long. Excellent. Okay. Pendragon. Yep. All I'll one word. It's, it's the it's the character's name. Bobby Pendragon. Okay. Okay. Great. And then we already asked you about a Disney movie recommendation, but would you have another movie or documentary recommendation that you'd like to make for us? Oh, man. I mean, I, I'm sure this is by no means uh, a, a new recommendation. And if anyone's uh, existing alive right now, they've at least heard of Avatar 2. But man, it's so good. I mean, <laughs> it was so good. Uh, I, it was it was so impressive. Did you watch it in IMAX 3D? I twice. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it with one of my uh, uh, co-residents here in uh, Alabama. And then when I went home for the holidays, I made my family and my best friend watch it too. Oh, that's awesome. Gosh, yeah, that is a movie I think I would go back to and watch again. Oh, man. Well, and the, the best part about watching it a second time is the first time you're just trying to, like, get all the story beats and, like, make sure you can, like, see what's going on. And you're just so, like, awestruck you can't even, like, pay attention necessarily. So mm-hmm. the second time, like, once they got to the water, which, like, took way too long, but that's a different tangent. Um, <laughs> like, I was able to, like, focus on, like, the the, face, the facial, like, motion capture, which is, like, part of what made the technology of it so good was like they had to advance the motion capture to catch up to it and so i was able to just kind of uh, ignore the story beats and just like focus on all of the like technological marvels of it and it was just a completely different experience and still super cool what are they up to now in the box office last i saw they were like 1.2 billion dollars something like that i haven't kept up with it the past week or two so i actually don't know where they've landed recently I was reading that they had to get into the top four movies seen in in history to just make um, to come out even, yeah, with the money that they invested into into the movie making. But yeah, incredible film, highly recommended. But you are the first to recommend that. Oh, really? You are. So oh. yes, so great. Well. Should we dive in a little bit uh, to learn more about your journey to medicine and pediatric OMM, I guess? Sure, let's do it. Yeah. So how, this is going way back, how did you originally become interested in medicine? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you can't tell from me, like, wanting to do, like, board game design and, like, history and stuff like I'm uh, big on like problem solving and like the the medical decision making like stuff of it all and so when I was a junior in high school I did like a a dual credit course through our community college that was anatomy and physiology and I was like hooked from there I liked all of the the interesting problem solving of it all and I liked all the science and medicine of it and then the more I did uh, the more class I took in college the more I loved it especially like I took like a parasitology course that was super cool and I mean, I always knew I wanted to do something that was like teaching related and like helping people um, and to do that in like a medicine intertwined was uh, kind of like the best of both worlds. Um, yeah, that was what got me initially hooked. Yeah. Is anybody in your family in medicine? Um, technically, no. <laughs> uh, I say technically because my mom does physician relations in the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so she's like technically like in a medical field, but she is by no means like patient-facing medical. Got it. Got it. So how how then did you choose between um, allopathic or um, MD school versus osteopathic or DO school? How did you make that choice? Well, the the nice thing was I came from like a, a 
a wealth of options coming from Texas. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Texas medical schools, but there's like a gajillion of them. Um, And so at the time I was applying, this was back when there was only one DO school in Texas, uh, which is where I went to med school. Um, And I actually didn't get in the first time. I was waitlisted at uh, TCOM, uh, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, where I went to uh, DO school. Um, And in my gap year, did some scribing in the Fort Worth area and trained scribing. Um, But then I uh, applied there again and got in the second time. And I, uh, even though I didn't get into there or any other uh, schools, I wanted to go to a DO school because I liked the osteopathic approach where they kind of took everything into consideration. And then Mm -hmm. to me, at least, it seemed like, well, OMM is just kind of uh, MD plus, like, I can mm-hmm. do all of the things that an MD can do. Plus I can use my hands to do treatment stuff. And so to me, it seemed kind of like a no brainer. Yeah. Did you have a primary care physician that was your physician who was a DO? Nope. Or <laughs> how did, how did you initially get introduced to um, osteopathic medicine? Uh, honestly, I was just in med school and just had heard about the different uh, med schools in Texas and the fact that there were just so many med schools and all of them were good. Um, I just heard about TCOM being a good medical school. And then I like toured it and learned more about like, what even is a DO? And like, the more I learned, the more intrigued I got. And so it was just honestly like self-interest. And then like, once I learned about that, then I like started shouting a DO. And so it, it, it all became about just from like self-interest. There wasn't like a specific like inspiration of a DO necessarily that propelled me towards it. Got it. And I remember when I was applying to medical school and looking at the Texas medical schools, they don't they have heavily favor people from texas very much so well it's a it's a state mandate so right. that's the that's the thing is the that's why they have their own application service the yeah. tmdsas or it's for right. all the medical and dental schools um because i think at the time i don't know if it's still the case it probably is that like 90 percent of the uh public school uh people had to be in state And so Mm -hmm. that was like the public school charter. Um, And so at the time, the only private school was Baylor. That was the only uh, private medical school and all the rest were public. So eight of the nine were public and TCOM was one of them because it's through the University of North Texas. Okay. Okay. So you get into the Texas osteopathic, to TCOM, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. What was your experience like with OMM or Osteopathic Principles of Practice? Oh man, it was the best. I mean, I had like an all-star dream team training me. Um, Sajid Survey was yeah. our like uh, lead trainer. Um, he was in charge of the first year curriculum. And uh, then Dr. Lee was finishing up her, uh, Yane Lee was finishing up her uh, fellowship my first year. And then uh, since I graduated, she's since stayed on as uh, also part of the first year curriculum. I don't know if she's still doing that. Um, and then Ryan Seals was in charge of our second year curriculum. And then we had uh, Dr. Crow, Dr. Hensel, like a lot of big names from like the DO sphere that were like at my med school that I got to train under and had such a great experience training under them. Dr. Survey, he's been on the podcast, just an awesome human he's being. He's such a cool dude, great. isn't he? He is. He's so cool. I met him actually in Convo in person last year. And he's like, yeah, we, we need to do another podcast about acupuncture. <clears throat> so oh, yeah. I, I, I need to bring him on for round two. But he was just so fun to talk to and so knowledgeable and so 
enthusiastic about osteopathic medicine. Um, For sure. I, I think the best adjective I would use to describe him is warm. Like he's such a easygoing guy. He's so easy to talk to. And he's got like the, the softest, warmest OMM hands. Phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. And huge hands too. Yes. Um, and then he also runs, he talked a little bit about the fellowship that he runs for performing what a unique arts. fellowship, right? <laughs> yeah. As far as I know, it's the only one in the country. Yeah, I think whenever I was in med school, he was in the process of starting it. He had not yet started it. Or I think maybe like when I was graduating, he was about to get his first class or something like that. Um, yeah. But he like did like some lectures for us on it and like brought in some of his dancers and some like uh, like wind instrument players and like taught like some like uh, vocal airway stuff on them. It was very interesting. Yeah, I'm actually hoping to go down there and rotate with him for a week or so just to see what he does and learn how he treats uh, performing artists. Oh so. yeah. It's super interesting. And like their like repetitive strain patterns are so unique. Yeah. I mean, that's so cool that you had such great mentors that were inspiring and, and uh, motivated you to, to learn osteopathic medicine. So were you able in the third and fourth year of your, of your clinical work to, were you able to use OMT in the hospital? In the hospital, not really. Um, I mean, the, the problem is that a lot of the like attendings that were supervising me weren't DOs, um, or if they were DOs, they didn't uh, practice OMM in practice. And so the if they if I did do it, they were kind of just like, hey, we trust you to not mess it up. And I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> um, but like officially like being like under someone doing OMM in the hospital setting? Not really. I mean, did I do it in the hospital? Yeah. Um, I liked OMM a lot. And so I got to do it in the hospital just because I asked a lot. Um, but my third year, whenever we had a required OMM rotation during our third year clerkships and okay. uh, during my OMM rotation, I actually went and did a cranial course uh, with the uh, cranial Academy. And so mm -hmm. uh, that was just like cementing a lot of the cranial stuff I was already doing. Um and yeah, that was like the, the most of them I did. And then I did a fourth year rotation with a family practice doc um, in my like hometown um, and did some uh, OMM with her a lot. And uh, that was really interesting because her being a family practice doc, uh, she had a lot of like uh, moms. And so we would do like newborn baby, like feeding stuff as well as like mm -hmm. uh, treating the mom too at the same time, which was super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I bet that was... I bet you you learned a lot at that time and you're applying probably a lot of that in your current pediatric pra practice, I guess in residency and maybe now even fellowship. Um, oh yeah. No, but like that was like the start of all that. And then just snowballed in residency once I got like specific yeah. tutelage in like baby stuff. But yeah, that was certainly like the yeah. first time that we like treated babies with any like actuality. Cause I barely yeah. did any pediatric stuff in med school. Yeah. If I could go back to med school and your med school class, you know, you, you talked about this all-star team of OMM physicians that you were learning from. What was the, the vibe of the, the class generally? Were there, was it like 50-50 as far as interest in OMM versus not interest? Was it like 80-20? What was the gauge uh, of your class, do you think? Somewhere in between. Um, I would say maybe like, uh maybe like 20 maybe like eh, 30 to 40 percent interested in omm and the rest not 
Um, And I feel like that's, at least for the time that I was in med school, that seemed pretty typical-ish. The OMM wasn't super uh, commonly used necessarily. And and 30 to 40 might even be a little generous. 30 Mm -hmm. probably seems like about right-ish. And for how many people use it from my uh, people I'm still in touch with, um, that seems about right. About 30%. Yeah. Was it, was it like that with the other systems classes? Uh, I mean, it's a little different because I mean, I mean, with the other systems classes, like you couldn't, uh, I guess the difference being like, you can't neglect cardiology, physiology, like you literally can't learn how to be a doctor if you don't know how to do cardiology. But if you don't, if you choose to not do muscle energy, it's just like, a tool in your belt that you're just choosing not to like hone and use. Right. So I right. feel like the, it's, it's hard to come. That's like comparing apples and oranges, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. That's a valid point. Yeah. I just try to, I've always wondered, um, you know, why, and maybe I, I'm projecting, why do I sense a lack of interest at times, even with such great faculty teaching, um, yeah, because I feel like it's just, it's just very important to osteopathic identity. I do think it is important. Um, yeah. And I think I, I agree. I think the, now being on like the other side of it and seeing the, like the real world quote unquote, like it's great in med school. Cause you're like rose colored glasses. Like, yeah, I'm going to do OMM and change the world. And then it's, it's hard going out into practice where like, a lot of people don't do OMM and Mm -hmm. I'm in the South and here in where I'm at in the South, like there really aren't many people doing OMM, at least in the pediatric population. I can't speak as much to the adult population, but like there's a lot of MD everything. And so, uh, and I feel like what some of my classmates said during med school, that's even more so once I'm like out in practice, uh, quote unquote, I'm still in fellowship, but like seeing like other like practicing attendings a lot of what i get as well there's not like good evidence to support it and at least in the peds population that's very true like there's a very sparse literature um supporting omm in the pediatric population and so yeah. it's hard getting the needle moved and it's kind of this recursive cycle you don't have evidence because you can't do omm and because you can't do omm you can't do uh you can't have the evidence and so it's this like recursive feeding cycle of not having the thing to support the thing you want to do that you know works yeah. I mean, undoubtedly we need, we need more research, you know, as in, I feel like all fields of medicine, but maybe more so on them. At the same time, most of medicine is not um, double blind placebo controlled. Oh, uh, for sure. And I mean, that was the, the talk that I was, uh, we did a journal club about this a couple months ago where I brought it up to my division because we do like a divisional journal club. Um, Cause one of my good wow. friends from residency did a, a published in pediatrics about like a systematic review of like all of the literature to date in the pediatric population with OMM mm-hmm. um, and kind of was talking about that. Like one of the big limitations of pediatric research or OMM research in general is just that uh, you can't do the inherent gold standard of other like medical trials, like drug trials. You can't do a randomized a double blind controlled trial because it inherently can't be double blind. And so, uh, at least from the, the practitioner, you could maybe make yeah. a statistician blinded and make it double blind that way. But yeah, that's a whole other argument. Yeah. I mean, but you're right. I think there is, there's definitely room for, for research. Um, anyway, just, 
curious question, you know, that yeah. I think I'll be asking for many years. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you find out the answer, you let me know. Yeah, we actually we're going to be going over a OMM pediatric article on Friday with our journal club. Oh, great. Which and one? Let me pull it up. So I feel like I've read most of them during residency because we had a monthly journal club in our the clinic I was at for all like our continuity clinic was all DOs. And so uh, w- one of our articles per month was a, uh, a like an OMM article. And so I feel like I've read most of them at this point. Yeah, let me see. Let me pull it up here. It is osteopathic manipulative treatment showed reduction of length of stay and costs in preterm infants. Oh, yeah, Syst- that's a great article. Yeah, systematic review and meta-analysis. Yeah, yeah. Because that's really where the, a lot of the evidence in PEDS is, is all like uh, newborns. That's really where mm-hmm. newborns and like asthma and a little bit of like otitis. Like those are like the big, those are the big areas where there's been like some research supporting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So how you're going through your clinical years in medical school, third and fourth year, how did you decide on pediatrics? Oh man. I mean, if you can't tell with my love of Disney, I mean, I'm, I like kids, like <laughs> kids are fun. I mean, lots of reasons, honestly, I feel like, uh, going through the more rotations I did, the more that peds just felt right. Um, I liked all of the like medical stuff. And so like for a second, I was deciding between like med peds and peds, but essentially I was doing med peds just to like feel better about treating teenagers. And at that point I was like, I'll just do peds. Um, cause the things I liked about medicine were things that like eventually drew me down to hospitalists, which is all like the the inpatient complexity and medical decision-making of complex patients and things like that. Um, but like in general, kids get better. Uh, adults, it's sad. They die a lot. And so, and in general, if a kid goes into the hospital, a lot of times they bounce back and go home completely unscathed and not the worst for wear. And a lot of times they're totally fine. Um, you do have some kids who have long-standing problems and, or they're complex for other reasons, but it's much less the case. And, people die in the hospital much less frequently, um, especially if you're outside of the ICU setting, almost unheard of. And so it's significantly happier. People tend to have a little bit more upbeat uh, nature as a a general blanket statement. Um, And one of the things that really got me was I love teaching, obviously. And so the prospect of teaching both patients and families was super interesting to me. Uh, And the fact that in the adult population, I just saw over and over again that Adults didn't want to change any of their own personal behaviors, but in peds, a lot of times the parents want to change their kids' behaviors, even if they don't want to change them in themselves. And so <laughs> they were a lot more compliant about their kids' medications than they were themselves. And so that was one of the other draws, to name a few. Yeah, that was great. That was great. And when you made that decision to go into pediatrics, did you think that you would be using OMM or OMT in your future practice? Oh, for sure. I mean, that was one of the big things that drew me to to my residency program that I did, because at the time I applied, there were only two osteopathic recognition programs in the country for peds. And granted, uh, this is dating myself slightly, but uh, I was like the one of the first, either the first or second class with the merger. So it used to be that there was a previous, like there were all the DO residencies and MD residencies. Um, and so all of the that went away with the ACGME AOA merger. And so uh, my program was a traditionally uh, MD residency that there was a separate DO residency like nearby that they like absorbed essentially pre-merger and had the track. And so they were already like in place to do 
uh, osteopathic recognition. And so that was one of the big things that drew me there. Because at the time it was just nationwide children's in Ohio and it was uh, Oklahoma State in Oklahoma. Um, mm -hmm. And so like one of the questions I asked in every single PEDS interview was, hey, do you guys do OMM? Not only do you do OMM, like do you tolerate OMM if you don't have someone who's like able to teach it? Because I feel like that was one of the most prevalent things in PEDS at least was a lot of places didn't have any pediatric DOs or if they were, they didn't practice. And so finding a place that would even let you do it well, was sometimes a struggle. Yeah. I feel like you would love to talk to one of the physicians in our clinic, Dr. Chris Polod. He's been a pediatrician for, oh man, I don't know, probably close to 20 years. And he, yeah, he does at this point, I would say probably 90% um, OMM. Um, but uh, yeah, he loves treating kids. He has a very interesting approach, OMT approach to the strain patterns in kids, um, treating plagiocephaly and torticollis and colic. And um, yeah, I feel like you almost have to because their strain patterns are so different, especially in that age, man nothing sticks. It's all flexible and easily mm -hmm. treated out. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. We, uh, we have an inpatient OMM service. So the pediatricians will consult us for head molding or torticollis or difficulty latching. Mm -hmm. And the infants are so much fun to treat because you're right. I mean, they, they're so elastic and the changes yeah. they make are so palpable and happen so quickly. Yeah, it's so rapid and it's like it's like treating Play-Doh, man. It, it's so easy and pliable. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Even even the med students who are just learning their palpatory skills can can feel those changes in the tissue. And they're yeah. like, oh wow, I felt that. Um, so it's it's very it's a great experience for them as well. Yeah, super rewarding. Can you tell us a little bit about the osteopathic track that you were on during your pediatric residency? What exactly did that entail? Sure. Unfortunately, if someone's listening to this as like a prospective like pediatric resident and they're like, oh, I want to go do that. Unfortunately, it's not a, the case anymore. Um, I was uh, the current third years in the residency program or the last class of that. Um, and so now they have an advanced competency in OMM, but it's no longer an, a, a separate track. Um, which functionally uh, means that I had more protected time for OMM. Um, the reason that went away is because our, uh, our associate program director who was in charge of that was the DO who like did a lot of the teaching and she left for another position uh, at a different hospital. And so we lost essentially like our main OMM person and they didn't have another person in our institution to fill that void. And so uh, because they couldn't... Uh, find someone to fulfill that we essentially had to like discontinue our uh osteopathic track but functionally for me what it was it was great um it was four people per year so three of my closest friends from residency um, who are all doing fellowship at various places um we once a month would have a afternoon where we would be excused from our clinical duties and we would go do omm things we would have uh, a didactic for an hour or two and then like hands-on skills labs for a couple hours um, we had two months of OMM rotations as like elective rotations uh, during our residency where we uh, rotated with different DOs in the community um, and did a lot of uh, OMM sometimes on adults, but most of it was like with uh, other family practice docs who did a lot of pediatric OMM as well. Um, and then there's like some, some uh, sports med docs who did like pediatric sports med 
and did some OMM that way. Um, mm. And then uh, journal clubs and things like that. Yeah, that's great. Oh, and so, then the, oh, sorry. Uh, the biggest thing that was one of the biggest boons to it too is we have like our continuity clinic. That's like an ACGME mandated thing. And one of our patient slots every week was reserved for OMM. And so that was probably one of the biggest things was every week I got to do at least a little bit of OMM. Um, and my like supervisor was a DO. And so uh, he would like challenge me on different stuff. Yeah. What were some of the common things that kids were coming in with when they were coming to see you for an OMM visit? I mean, probably the most, I, I feel like over time, we kind of got reputations for different things, um, like being like specialists in different types of OMM. And so like, I tended to be more of the cranial person. And so I did a lot, most of the stuff I did was plagio torticollis, honestly, and like feeding difficulty stuff. I mean, I would occasionally have like some scoliotics and uh, like other like uh, athletes. Typically it was either a baby or an athlete. <laughs> Those were, or a scoliotic. Those were like the big three essentially that mostly came into like our, our uh, clinic. Cause we were mostly like a Medicaid clinic. And so like an urban uh, uh, like uh, poverty area. And so we didn't have a ton of um, like advanced type stuff, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the athletes coming in for? Um, I'm trying to think of some of the stuff that came in. Like, I mean, some of them, like one of them, like was gotten a snowboarding accident and like broke his uh, fibula and ankle. And so like had all sorts of strain patterns from that. And he had like taken like months to come and see us after he was like cleared from his boot. And so he had like, all sorts of terrible compensatory strain patterns. And the problem is, the, a lot of the teenagers that you treat don't do any of the, the stretches you tell them to do. And so it's just like, like banging your head against a wall, trying to treat them whenever they come back frequently. But a lot of people <laughs> like uh, would do stuff if you told them and uh, they would see results. And so they would keep doing it. And uh, it was always super satisfying to say, Hey, you don't need to come see me anymore. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did they respond to that? They're like, no, uh, but I love it so much. Or they're like, Oh, I mean, God. it depends. depends on the family. Uh, a lot of the families, they they liked it. Uh, they, they could see like benefit for their kids and see them be more active and stuff. And so some of them, even like after we were like, no, we like don't need to see anybody. They're like, okay, but like, I'll see you in a month. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't have control over my clinic schedule. So I can't tell you not to come back, but like, okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Nice. Yeah. So, so you had one, one day a month where you had an OMM didactics, you had journal club, you had hands-on skills lab. And then on top of that, you had your, your continuity clinic. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you got a, 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 over three years, you know, that's a lot of, of good OMM time. Yeah. Understand the theory and get your hands dirty and uh, hopefully treat some strain patterns and make people more functional. Oh, for that's, sure. That's wonderful. And then you mentioned that you decided to go to fellowship because you love to teach. Mm -hmm. What, what are you hoping I guess, to teach? What are, what are some of your goals there? Yeah, I mean, the the main thing is I'm doing hospital medicine. So that's like a newer fellowship to sit for like hospital medicine boards within pediatrics. And so for me to be able to stay in like an academic setting and teach like med school, uh, med students and residents and, uh, and even fellows eventually like to stay in like a large freestanding pediatric hospital, that's almost kind of required at this point. But like on top of that, uh, one of the things that I'm planning to talk with uh, the new residency program where I'm doing fellowship at is to try to implement the curriculum I did back in residency, uh, which was like an osteopathic curriculum. Uh, I know you had mentioned it at the top of the episode, but that's one of the things that like 
I like teaching LMM. And so eventually the goal would be uh, if uh, willing, uh, like be at an institution that's like affiliated with a DO school and teach OMM to med students, even if it's not like at the med school itself, like teaching them like on the fly and practice and things like that. Um, it's like we talked about, it's a little different doing it in real life in a hospitalized patient, which is my primary patient population than doing it in clinic with an adult. Yeah, or doing it on a your fellow medical student in class. 100%. It's one thing to treat a, a 22 year old healthy person. It's another to treat a six month old sick kid. Or 80-year-old low back pain patient. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. So your ideal job is working for a hospital possibly associated with an osteopathic medical school and be educating the osteopathic medical students about pediatrics, pediatric OMM, and OMM in general. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Can you give us an insight into any job opportunities that you have? Or oh, geez. Looking? Honestly, I'm not looking right now because I'm debating doing a second fellowship. So <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> You're just a lifelong learner. Uh, hey, man, I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment. What can I say? One day I'm just going to keep training and training and then one day I'll retire. And it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm turning 39 this week and I've been in school Ooh. my whole life. So yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm, I'm open to kind of go on wherever. I'm not tied down to any specific place. If, if the right job opportunity presents itself, happy to go wherever. Yeah, that's fantastic. What advice do you have for osteopathic medical students who may be you know, dragging their feet a little bit going to OMM lecture, OMM lab? Oh man, I guess the... You mean like in terms of like, they might not be interested in it? Yeah. I mean, what would you tell somebody that's, that says, Hey Ryan, you know, gosh, I just, I hate going to this class or I'm just, I'm not interested. What yeah. advice like, would you give them? I think the, the, the couple of things I'd say is one, if you're, go, if you're, if you're reticent to go just because some of the theory of it is kind of boring to you, um which sometimes some of my classmates would say that like hey man like i can't take another lecture on counter strain or like tender points i'm gonna go gouge my eyes out like i get it and like yeah. the thing is they're teaching you like the scaffolding and really in in actuality and practice omen is so much more fun um because essentially none of those things are really done in isolation like yeah like i don't do an entire treatment in just muscle energy or counter strain i use like all of them in varying degrees and in general i don't do hvla like i pretty much the only thing i hvla in my practice is ribs if that um especially because a lot of hospitals uh have like a lot of wariness with hvla especially cervical hvla so like when i was in residency we were specifically allowed to do any treatment except for cervical hvla um, just because the hospital didn't want that liability for like vertebral artery dissection, even though like, if you do it correctly, like the risk of that's very minimal. Um, but like, I just don't like HVLA. I don't think it has as much long lasting benefit for my patient population. So I just don't do it as much and that's totally fine. And so like, I do a lot of like FPR as my like main thing and like a lot of soft tissue stuff. That's what a lot of peds is anyway, is a lot of like myofascial stuff. Um, cause it's all like non long standing strain patterns and 
a lot of stuff isn't ossified. So like a lot of muscular, a lot of like bony stuff doesn't really work as much anyway. And like, especially like your younger kids. So like you can stack on these really interesting, like uh, three dimensional treatments, the longer you go. And in general, the more you do, the more satisfying it is. But it's just like anything else. If you're not interested, it's hard to get that initial in into the door. Um, I think that's like one of the first things is like, it's much more fun in practice than they make it seem like segmenting it out into the different like cut and dry. Like this is what counter strain is. This is muscle energy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I feel like it's much more fun in practice. Um, I would absolutely agree. You know, I tell the students, you know, just like every, every class, some people like it, some people don't like it. And it's, I'm not going to fault you for not liking OMM, but I would hope that, you at least have enough knowledge to know when to refer to OMM. Exactly. You know, I think, I think that's important. Um, know when to refer. And it's not just for low back pain. <laughs> yeah. Know when to refer and then like uh, be able to explain at a basic understanding level what they will expect if you refer them. That's the biggest thing for me. So like whenever mm -hmm. I was in clinic and people would refer for OMM to us, like they would just be like, hey, someone's going to do like magic stuff with their hands and refer them to me. And it would drive me nuts because they would have no idea what they're coming there for. And like, if you think about it, what other procedure do you refer patients for that you don't know what it's about? So like, I don't refer you for an appendectomy without knowing what that means. I can at least like, do I know the intricacies of doing an appendectomy as a pediatrician? No, but I can be like, hey, like I don't just say, hey, I'm gonna send you to a surgeon and they're gonna do shiny scalpel stuff. Like, no, I can get like a basic understanding of what an appendectomy is or like other surgical procedures. So like, I feel like the same level of like basic understanding is at least needed for like the general medical field as a whole. Um, not just for DOs, but certainly DOs can at least like understand what it means and like, I feel like until you physically have OMM done on you or you've done it, it's hard to understand what that actually entails, which I feel like gets at the other thing that I like give as my advice is like you get like instantaneous relief and, and relief being not just pain, although that's often the, like the primary indication, but like feeding dysfunction, they don't have pain necessarily um, mm -hmm. for like your newborn babies, but like you instantaneously, like you can see them having like a terrible suck where you hear like, the sucking sounds outside the mouth as they're feeding. You treat their hyoid musculature and like under the tongue, boom, they feed like a champ and mom immediately feels better. Her nipples hurt less because the baby's not chomping into them. Like there's instantaneous relief. And I, it's hard to find many things in medicine that give you instantaneous change and benefit to that significant degree. And I feel like it's, it's a high that people often chase within DO field, I feel like because it, that, that instantaneous relief is so uh, palpable and appreciated by the patients. Yeah. I think as, as we talked about earlier with infants, it maybe is a little bit more instantaneous, maybe a little bit more gratifying for the provider because of those quick changes and that those changes that you see, like the latching that you just mentioned, um, I, I do find that with the older population that I commonly see in my outpatient clinic, there's just so many layers of strain patterns. It, it takes a long time to treat sometimes. Um, yeah. Sometimes they like, do. Sorry, what sometimes they even leave the clinic feeling worse. Honestly, yeah. or just sore, you know, because they had a, 
you know, they're just very rotated in their thoracolumbar junction, one direction, and then you're trying to move them in the other direction and just trying to get that vertebral segment to move better. And their body's just not accustomed to that. And then they just get sore. It's almost as if they did a hard workout, but yeah. gradually it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, the nice thing about peds is like, that's typically not the case. And if anything, like oftentimes for most of the peds, uh, referrals like you're seeing them a couple times and then you're done like a lot of times for a lot of my like plagio torticollis um I feel like I was a little bit of an outlier at my institution but like I would treat them like a few times and then would like discharge them they didn't need to have like a perfect looking head they just need to have a, a a moving mobile cranial structure and then it would mm -hmm. heal itself like as long as it's like a mild to moderate like who cares um, yeah. as long as they're like plagiocephaly is resolved and they're feeding great a little bit of plagiocephaly never hurt anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes that's what I'm telling the the parents that, you know, this possibly could resolve on its own, but we're just trying to speed up the process here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, great. Um, any other things that you'd like to mention related to pediatrics, related to pediatrics OMM or just OMM in general? Man. Uh, I feel like one of the things, so where I trained, uh, for med school, I mean, a lot of them are like, uh, really into cranial, especially like Dr. Seals of, of the people who trained me directly. He was definitely the one who was the most interested in, uh, cranial and like visceral and that type of stuff. Um, I think, uh, my advice and, uh, this might get into your plugs later, but like, I, I'm not affiliated with any of the like training courses in any way, shape or form. But I think if you're legitimately considering doing OMM with like any degree of like uh, regularity might be the word I'd use. If you're going to regularly use OMM in practice, regardless of what your specialty is, I think doing some advanced coursework is going to help you. Um, I think a cranial or visceral course or both is super helpful. Um, I think the more cranial I've done, the better significantly my palpatory skills have gotten. Um, and I think, and you don't have to wait until a cranial course to do cranial. Um, I know people are often afraid of it, but you know what? I treated hundreds of heads before I ever stepped foot in a cranial course. Um, all I did was I, uh, before I even did the cranial lab in our OMM lecture, I learned about it at, at Convo. So my first year of med school, I went to Convo and did a little intro to cranial thing. It taught me how to do some cranial and then I was super interested. I thought it was super neat. And I just did a bunch of cranial on all my classmates. And then eventually, like, I was one of the only people in our med school that was doing cranial. And so uh, when I, by the time I got to the cranial course, it was like cementing a lot of the anatomy and doing like some more facial stuff that I hadn't done as much. Um, but like, I feel like the more cranial I do, the better I get at palpating anything else. Uh, and I feel like visceral is kind of the same thing. It's a lot of like sensing and other type of stuff. So I'm always happy to give a shameless plug for cranial stuff. And I know there's yeah. multiple different courses of it, depending on your personal style and preference. Mm -hmm. Were you one of the students that could feel that uh, CRI from day one or did it take you a little while? Oh yeah, no, I, I, I felt the CRI at the first step. I tended to be in general, I tend to be more of like a fluids and fascia kind of guy. And so mm -hmm. like for me, uh, like for cranial, like bones have always been the harder thing of um of cranial like i always have like 
an easy time feeling CRIs. And then I have to kind of like focus a little bit for dura and then bones. I have to like focus even more. Like I can feel like, like uh, suture restrictions, but like bony movements, I have to like really focus for. Mm. Um, and that just tends to be like my more like fluid centric stuff, which might be why I'm more like cranial visceral focused anyway, because I tend to be more like fluids and fascia, but. Um, yeah. Probably why you love treating infants as well. You make a valid point. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool well gosh any any other plugs i mean what about your podcast oh man uh i mean if you want to listen to the podcast they're there i don't know that i'm gonna make any more episodes (laughs) they're too too much work honestly i mean like the the one i did in med school or in uh, residency that's like the the pediatric board review one uh my co-residents and i did it for weekly for 50 episodes and so that was a large uh time investment during residency when you're already super busy uh that we did like the second like the back half of second year and the beginning of third year like while we were applying to fellowships and stuff uh, and one of the co-hosts uh my best friend from residency uh samantha demarsh uh she's also a do and was in the the osteopathic track with me she's actually the one that published in pediatrics about omm which is a great article you guys should check it out the the article is called pediatric osteopathic manipulative medicine a scoping review uh, it was published in Pediatrics in February of 2021. Um, and Samantha DeMarge and Annalise Hunsinger were uh, osteopathic track residents uh, with me at the time. Annalise was a year older than me. And she's actually practicing at, uh, at her mom's practice as a primary care doc up in Indianapolis, or in Indiana, rather. Um, and then yeah. Jenny, Jennifer Belsky, who's the senior author on the paper, um, she actually was in the osteopathic track uh, long before I was. She was a Hemonk fellow when I was a resident and then is now a, a Hemonk attending up north as well. Um, but she actually had a lot of good pediatric articles talking about the um, the safety of OMM, uh, especially like in the pediatric Hemonk population. So that was a lot of her research was like showing like, hey, it's safe to do OMM on pediatric cancer patients. You're not going to break them. Um, and they didn't have any like worse outcomes otherwise. And so that was a lot of her uh, literature that she was publishing. And this was just kind of a scoping review of the pediatric literature at the time. And so I think if you're interested in pediatric OMM, it's worth a look. Yeah. If you could send me some of those articles, I'll include them in the link of the, uh, the show notes. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm happy to. That'd be great. Well, thank you, Brian. It was an awesome conversation. I really, I love your passion and your interest for pediatrics and for pediatric OMM. I'm super excited to see where you end up or to hear about where you end up and what you're doing in your future career. Awesome. Well, thanks for having I mean, me on, Ben. I appreciate it. I mean, if you ever get there, you know, you might just keep doing <laughs> fellowships for the next decade. Or I mean, I don't, don't, don't tempt me with a good time. <laughs> well, thanks again for being generous with your time and you have a great evening. Thanks, man. You too. Okay. Thanks. Bye. After speaking with Dr. Flaherty, you can tell he is a gifted teacher, and he is enthusiastic to share his knowledge with future OMT physicians. We thank him for his enthusiasm, wish him the best in his future career endeavors, and appreciate him carrying on the pediatric osteopathic tradition.